This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous discussion of difficult or hidden subjects. Tonight is the first in a series about mental illness. My guest is Bob Whitaker, and we're going to be talking about the uh, really questioning the use of medication uh, in treating the mentally ill. Bob Whitaker is an award-winning journalist covering medicine and science. He's the author of four books, including Mad in America, and his most recent book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. This book recently won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Anatomy of an Epidemic investigates the question of why the number of people disabled by mental illness has grown so rapidly over the past 50 years. Out of many possible explanations for this phenomenon, Bob Whitaker proposes that it is the very drugs we currently use to treat mental illness that are responsible for chronically disabling those who take them. Welcome to Safe Space, Bob Whitaker. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by asking you to tell me, you know, how did you get into this question and um, where has it taken you? I'd love to ask you to condense your entire book, you know, into maybe like the five-minute summary of, of the argument that you want to make. Sure. Uh, um, I actually got into this whole uh, subject of reporting on psychiatric outcomes, so to speak, uh, about 10 years ago when I was doing the book Mad in America, which looked at really outcomes for schizophrenia patients in, in the U.S. and other developed countries, uh, which had been reported by the World Health Organization to be not as good as in outcomes for schizophrenia patients in India, and Colombia, and Nigeria, basically developing countries of the world. So that was my first foray into this subject. And having reported on that, um, people kept asking me, well, how are we doing, how are outcomes for bipolar patients, depressed patients, that sort of thing in the United States today, and other developed uh, you know, other rich countries. And as a beginning point for uh, answering that question, how are we doing? How is our current paradigm of care, uh, you know, how does it work long-term? Is it helping people get well, stay well, and thrive? Uh, one of the first things I did is just look at the number of people on government disability due to mental illness and, and chart that over time. And when you do that, you come up with a very startling finding. You find that in 1987, there were about 1.25 million adults on government disability due to mental illness, and today there are more than 4 million. So there's been this tripling of people, of adults on, on government disability. Now, that doesn't prove anything by itself. It just raises questions, and it really does focus you. How do medications shape the long-term outcomes of, say, depression, of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, et cetera? And that's a question that you're going to try to answer, or I tried to answer, by looking at what the scientific literature has to say, uh, you know, about that question. I mean, you can look at anecdotal stories, and, um, you know, I think I, I, you know, talk to many people that do tell incredible stories, but ultimately that's a story of science. And then the second question you want to raise is, is it possible that sometimes with this paradigm of care we have, you can take someone with a milder disorder, say a mild bout of, uh, bout, bout of depression, and at times there will be a certain percentage of people that will have a bad reaction to the antidepressant, let's say a manic response to the antidepressant, and that will push them into a diagnosis, a more severe diagnosis, like a bipolar disorder. So those are the two things I wanted to look at in these books, and they're both really scientific questions. And so let's... Let's keep tracking that, because what I understand you found from your look into why, you know, 
people with schizophrenia fared better in developing nations was that, in fact, those people, I think it was about 16%, only took medications. And so that was relatively, compared to the United States, fewer people taking psychotropic medication and actually having better outcomes. Right. That's the first surprise you find. So you do find in the World Health Organization studies that, listen, they use antipsychotics in the short term to knock down psychotic symptoms there. They just don't keep people, necessarily everybody on them, you know, continuously. And so there they only uh, kept about 16% of their patients on them long term, whereas, of course, in the U.S. and other rich countries, continual drug maintenance is the, uh, you know, preferred form of care. It's a standard of, of care. And what that immediately leads you to and ultimately leads you to is that we have this one-size-fits-all protocol for treating schizophrenia uh, or people so diagnosed. And what you find in the research literature is that if you really wanted to maximize long-term outcomes, you would use the drugs in a much more selective fashion. And you find, certainly you find that some people are helped with the drug short-term. And you do find that there are some good long-term responders as well. But the thought, the part that we don't get or that we don't incorporate into our protocol is that there are many patients that would do better long-term off, off the drugs. And this showed up uh, in a real clear fashion in a study conducted here in the United States, a 15-year outcome study conducted by Martin Harrow at the University of Illinois. He, re- he, he followed close to, um, he followed 64 schizophrenia patients over 15 years. 25 of those patients got off drugs, off antipsychotics. And that group actually that got off had a much higher recovery rate. Their, their long-term recovery rate was 40% versus uh, 5% of those who stayed on the medications. Now, what Dr. Harrell will say is really what this shows is that there is a subset of patients that would do better long-term off medications, and we need to have protocols that allow for this this sort of variable need. Some people do better on the drugs. On, some people with that diagnosis do better long-term on medication. But there's a subset that do better long-term off medication. You need, a, you need an artful protocol to allow for both possibilities. And did he propose how to distinguish who was who? You know, that's the big question, of course. How do you distinguish, uh, you know, who needs and who does not? I will say as part of, you know, one of the things I looked at in this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is I looked to solutions. Is there a place where they figure that out? And they have really uh, adopted a selective use protocol in northern Finland in a, in a region called Western Lapland, and they did this beginning in 1992. And they now have the best long-term outcomes for psychotic patients of anybody in the Western world. And their protocol really has two parts to it, their drug use protocol. When patients first come in, when, at that first psychotic break, they actually do not put people on antipsychotics right away. One, they want to see if, if, if with intensive psychosocial care, and they may use like benzodiazepines to help people restore sleep-wake cycles, is there a group that basically can get beyond that psychotic episode without being put on antipsychotics in the first place? And they find, in fact, that more than 50% of their first episode patients never need to go on antipsychotics at all. And then second, once if those who then go on, they, they try to get everybody stable, and then they have a second moment a re, that really takes place after about six months in which they do try to carefully taper people off medication. And what they find is that some can then successfully go off and some cannot. And so they have these two sort of defining moments 
where uh, sort of like branches in the, you know, branches in the pathway where either people go on to long-term use or don't don't need to go on to long-term use. But there's really no magical moment they say these people need it and these people don't. You basically just have protocols to to support people and see who can go off successfully. Part of what was really striking, you described that, that clinic in, in your book, was it sounded like for three weeks, you know, when someone comes in with their first psychotic break, there was this kind of three-week period where they used something that you called open dialogue, where they ta- they brought the patient into the discussion with all the clinicians and family members also. So they weren't being talked about behind their backs and sort of theorized about almost like an object, but they were included in it from the very beginning and sort of helped to deal with whatever it was that was a challenge in their life at that time. And I, I wonder if you could say more about that because I was fascinated by that. Yeah, I think this really is key. I mean, it's not, well, if you go to the Western Lapland Project, it's not like a placebo form of care at all, right? Mm-hmm. What it is is this intensive psychosocial care, and it is very sort of respectful of the person right from the beginning. So it's an, they're, they're involving that person in, well, first of all, the person is asked to tell his story. What's going on in your life? What's happening? They ask the person to say, what do you do well in life? In other words, don't just hold up a mirror of the person in which you focus on what's going wrong, but they, the person is also to remember his or her strengths. The person is asked to think about what they want from the future. You know, what, what do they want going forward? And so that's one thing. There's this sort of self-reflection that is placed in front of the person to help them remember all their strengths. But the second is, it is a very collaborative decision-making process. So they'll even ask the person, well, before they institute, say, or, or before they recommend antipsychotics, they'll try to get the, the person to say, do you think you need a pill to help sort of diminish your anxiety? Would be that something you want? So the person is involved in the decision-making process, which clearly is so empowering, and it becomes this collaborative almost joint venture in which everybody is committed to helping that person get better. And it's just a very different approach. Does that approach also, I mean, say the person has real issues in their life that are difficult for them, a loss or something like that, Does do they try to address those things, the underlying stressors also? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a different, there is a different conception of what, say, stirs psychosis. Here, of course, we hear about it as a biological problem, as a chemical imbalance, etc. There it is pretty much understood that there are almost in, uh, there are going to be environmental stressors, whether it be uh, a loss, a setback in life, bullying, isolation. Trauma. Well, there can be very many sort of traumatic triggers as well. And absolutely one of the first things they're saying is we need to sort of identify that trauma, identify that difficulty, and then once it's identified, it starts to become more manageable, and then to figure out what can be done to lessen the anxiety in response to that grief, uh, loss, whatever it might be. And then at some point they'll bring in, you know, they bring in friends to help sort of help reinforce social bonds. They may bring in employers to help the person get back to work. They may bring bring in social counselors to help that person uh, sort of regain a place in, a, in an educational environment. So it's really the sense is, a person may be become socially isolated, may have trauma, may have these social difficulties, and we have to work, and we, I'm saying, the society, the therapist, to restore that person to a, a healthier place in his or her social world. 
I mean, as I listen to it, it makes so much sense to me. Like, who among us would not want that form of treatment should we become so ill? It's a very humane. I mean, it's, it's humane. It's empowering. It's very. It treats the person with extraordinary dignity. Um, and and what do you think the obstacles to to doing that here are? Why aren't we doing that? And how come they're able to overcome those obstacles? I think there's a couple reasons why we don't do it. One does have to do with our health care system. In other words, their health care system does, it does take place in, in, a, in a national health insurance, right? Yeah. So reimbursement rules aren't all of a sudden rearing their ugly head. And there's sort of a societal commitment to build health within, within their you know, local district. But second of all, you know, psychiatry does operate now in a for-profit environment, in essence. So pharmaceutical companies, of course, um, have promoted a standard of care in this sort of broad use of drugs because that produces great profits, right? And they obviously want to expand their markets, and if they can, frankly, if they can promote a story that keeps people on medications long-term, that helps promote profits. So you have that force in our society in a big way. The, the other problem that we really do have in our society is that psychiatry, and this goes back to the 1980s, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies and, and the leaders in academic psychiatry in the United States sort of made, they joined together in a storytelling partnership. And what you see is money began flowing from pharmaceutical companies to some of the people at the prestigious academic institutions who are known as thought leaders to become thought leaders, to serve as consultants, to give talks, etc. And once that money began flowing from pharmaceutical companies to these leaders in academic psychiatry, you know, they began telling a story. I'm talking about academic psychiatrists that really did fit with placing medications at the cornerstone of care and sort of shut out this more subtle uh, use of medications. And, and I really think that's a big problem is that the storytelling forces in our society around the use of psychiatric medications really are governed by a lot of commercial forces. It's very concerning. You know, you in your book, you really detail, you list a number of very well-known academic psychiatrists and their huge conflicts of interest and, and the sometimes millions of dollars that they received from pharmaceutical companies for really promoting drugs, sometimes in the absence of very compelling evidence. Yeah, that's, this is a fundamentally, in terms of as we look as a society perhaps to change what we do and to develop say, uh, you know, to follow Western Lapland's example and maybe run replication uh, studies here, projects here, and try to improve our long-term outcomes. Um, one of the real problems we have is a, a biased or a, a limited, it's a biased storytelling. And so the public really doesn't get a full-fledged story, an honest story. And one of the things I do in my book is I not only do I detail the money that goes to the academic psychiatrist, but I also detail how time and again when long-term studies funded by the NIMH, conducted by the NIMH in essence, produced results that belied our belief in the drugs. And let's say, let's say Martin Harrow's study that showed this higher recovery rate for the non-medicated schizophrenia patients. Those long-term results are never announced. They're never promoted to the public, and they become unknown and thus they don't become part 
of the of the evidence that we all we all know and discuss as we try to figure out how to best help people that um, you know end up struggling with their minds in various ways. Right. I mean, I think for me in my office, I often will have patients will ask me, well, "What's the long term effect of this on my brain? What do we know?" And often, if it's a new medication, the FDA only required a six week trial to show some you know efficacy over placebo. And as long as it shows that it's a little bit better than the sugar pill, we feel like it's safe to use, but we have we really haven't any long-term studies to look at what it does in the brain. Or what I hear you saying is even if we did have long-term studies, they might not have gotten published. This, again, is going to the crux of, quote, the evidence base around psychiatric medications. They get approved based on short-term trials. As you say, do they knock down, quote, a target symptom better than a sugar pill? And as long as they do that slightly better, you know, they get approved. But that's not, that's not telling us, well, what is happening to people long-term? Is it improving the long-term course of depression? By that I mean is do, do the medicated people experience less depression than, the, than they might otherwise naturally? And how does it affect people's uh, you know, employment rates, their enjoyment of life, their physical health? None of that is, is answered in these short-term trials. And, what, and you're exactly right. When you take a long-term perspective, you really do find that the medications, that the evidence for the medications and their long-term use is very problematic, at least in a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, you know, manner. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and I, this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Bob Whitaker about the use of met long-term psychotropic medications in treating mental illness and some of the really important and disturbing, um, but in some ways silenced, information about uh, ways in which medications may actually be harming people. Um, you know, the the other thing that occurs to me, Bob, is... Um, the fears that clinicians have, you didn't really get into this in your book about malpractice and what the perceived standard of care is now. You know, we were talking about your book at, at a conference here in Maine on Friday, and, um, you know, I was raising the question about, well, does someone with bipolar disorder really need to be on medication for the rest of their life? If they have a seasonal pattern, couldn't they be off medication since the medications have terrible side effects for diabetes and weight gain and movement disorders and so on, couldn't you just use the medications as soon as you saw the beginning of a mood episode and use them for, you know, two to six months and then have the person be off of it for the rest of the year? And the immediate response from a colleague was, well, you better watch out if you don't want to get sued. And I was really struck that, you know, the, the, the thinking now about you have to be on these medications for the rest of your life which, of course, is so directly profitable to the pharmaceutical industry, has really now controlled how we can even begin to think about treating patients. Right. This goes to these sort of societal forces that are driving this form of care, right, which does emphasize long, long-term use. And I think psychiatrists have it, are in a box. And by that, I, it, for one of the reasons that you exactly say, if they, if t- today, if they keep people on a medication, um, on a medication, and that person has a bad outcome, diabetes, has a lot of relapses, whatever it might be, you're not legally, cop- you know, you don't, you have no legal vulnerability because you're, you're you're adhering to a standard of care. But now, and again, this is because 
we don't hear about the evidence that shows that many people can get off successfully off medications. But now if a, if a, psych- if a physician removes the drug, right, and helps someone taper off, and that person has a relapse um, and has to go back in the hospital, say, or anything else bad happens, well, then that person may be opening himself, that physician may be opening himself or herself up to, you know, basically a lawsuit saying, you didn't adhere to standard of care. So what happens is, since we do not know this long-term outcomes literature, and we do not hear the stories about people who go off their medication and do fine and do well, um, the doctor ends up in this legal bind where he or she can't even respond to the patient and help the patient that wants to go off medications. And I can tell you, one thing is very, very, very clear, whether it be depression, bipolar disorder, or even a psychotic disorder, many people can, in fact, get off the medications and do well long-term. And I'm not saying everybody, but there are clearly many who can, and, and, and we need to make that possible, given the, you know, sort of long-term negative effects that often do occur with, say, use of antipsychotics or drug cocktails, et cetera. We're not serving our patients well by not allowing for that possibility. It's such a tricky thing. I mean, when you wrote the book, I know you're not a clinician, but did you have a fear? And I noticed you didn't have a medical disclaimer at the front of your book, which often these kinds of books do, you know, that said, you know, this is not intended to give medical advice to anyone. Please consult with your doctor. You didn't put that at the front of your book. And I wonder, were you worried that some people might precipitously go off their medicine and have a terrible reaction or outcome? And, I mean, were you afraid for, about that? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. And, I'm just, I, you know, when I, when I give, <coughs> excuse me, when I give talks, I always emphasize that. Uh, this is not a medical advice book at all. I'm not a doctor. I'm a, journal tr- a journalist trying to take a big-picture look. Listen, the reason I didn't put a medical disclaimer in because I thought it would be clear from the book that um, this is not a medical advice book. Um, you'll see in the very beginning chapters I say, listen, this is a story about a puzzle. I mean, I think that's the opening line. This is a story about a puzzle. Part of the puzzle is... Uh, listen, we do know that many people uh, are helped over the short term by medications, and we also know that many there are people that do well on them long term, but we have this puzzle of increasing disability rates. So I hoped that it was clear to readers that uh, this was not a medical advice book, it was not telling you what to do about medications, and it really was a, a journalist's take on uh, you know, the, these rising disability numbers and how medications may be, how are paradigm for using those medications may be fueling that, uh, you know, that epidemic of disabling mental illness. So I didn't know if a, I thought a disclaimer wasn't even appropriate because it would not be appropriate for me as a journalist to be giving medical advice in the first place. But, you know, maybe I should have put it in there. I don't know. Well, it's interesting, Bob, because even as I was thinking about doing this interview with you, I was thinking, now, do I need to have a medical disclaimer in the midst of this interview? Because, of course, the tragedy is is that serious mental illness is is a fa- you know is a life threatening illness, and people suffer terribly and so it 's such a complicated question because, on the one hand, there can be this sort of conspiracy idea about how f- pharmaceutical you know companies can almost be like the tobacco industry and kind of concealing studies that show really negative results or not publishing 
studies that show that the medicines don't always work and so on, or silencing, um, you know, academics who won't support. You know, you also give examples in your book of people whose work and research was discredited actively by pharmaceutical companies when they questioned these results. You know, things that really are chilling and very kind of conspiracy uh, feeling to me. And on the other hand, these illnesses can be so devastating. And I think speaking as a clinician, um, you know, the wish to help, the wish to help prevent suicide or to prevent terrible suffering for a whole family is so great. And if there's a pill that might help a little, you know, the urge to offer it is, is so, so human. Um, and so there's this sort of terrible dovetailing sure. between that wish to to prevent suffering and the sort of enormous profit that the companies stand to, to make from it. Yeah, I think there's even one other thing that um, is going on here. <laughs> so y- you're a physician, right? And, yeah. and you, of course, do want to give a, a, a pill that can help alleviate suffering, right? And I think not only are you taught this, often I think that's what you see. So people come in, whether it be to an emergency room or to, um, you know, a, a you know, private office, and you do see, and this shows up in the evidence, that often the pill will alleviate the crisis, uh, whatever it may be, a psychotic crisis, a depressive crisis, etc. And then once people go on the medication, it's really clear that, well, first of all, the brain adapts to the presence of the medication and such that going off is, there's a high risk of relapse. Now, part of that risk of a relapse is due to the fact that you've been on the medication in the first place. But nevertheless, there's a high risk of relapse. Now, you're, let's say you're a physician. Someone goes off and does poorly. Well, you say, see, I can't. You don't want that, that to happen, right? You want to manage that risk. And you also now see that going off can be so problematic. What, what the physician may not see is the possibility of a that even in the beginning, if we didn't medicate and try to manage the crisis in a different way, that people might get through it and have a good long-term outcome. They don't see that in the current practice, you know, standards of practice. And they also don't really see that with support, many people might get off and do quite well long-term. They don't have the experience of seeing that. And what I think science does, it sort of illuminates this paradox and, and sheds light on the fact of both of those possibilities, that actually if you tried to manage initial crises without putting everybody on medication, some would get better and have good long-term outcomes. It would be more of an episodic problem. And two, that even once people are stabilized on, there's again and again a subset that could get off and do well long-term. Science shows that to be show, so, and I, if anything, I believe, it's that science consistently tells us that story but that's what's missing from our, our, our medication use protocols. And I honestly believe that physicians operating today in our environment have no real experience of either of those possibilities. And there's nothing in the legal environment that encourages them to embrace those uh, possibilities. I w- and I would add even more to that, that it, you're raising an even deeper question, I think, which is that is it possible that the medicine begins to change the brain such that the the likelihood of relapse once coming off the medicine, especially if it's a rapid 
discontinuation may be higher than the risk of relapse might have been if they'd never been on the medicine. Oh, and, uh, yes, that's true. And that disturbed me. You know, I want to just, we're going to have to end in a minute, but when I read this book, I remembered in my residency learning about the history of psychiatry and using insulin shock and lobotomy and feeling superior to those doctors and thinking, oh, you know, we would never be so foolish now. And when I read your book, I really lost sleep the first night thinking, oh, really, are we doing just the same thing? Imagining ourselves to be superior, but in fact, you know, the the real possibility that these drugs may have long-term negative consequences for the brain and um, just how painful it is for everyone to be caught up in that, if that's true. Yeah, you know, history of medicine and the history of psychiatry uh, does tell us quite clearly that it is possible for physicians to be sort of deluded about the long-term merits of their therapies. That shows up in history of medicine and history of psychiatry again and again. And you're right. I think this is a real worry. I honestly believe that science is telling us that on the whole, the medications... um, you know, worsen outcomes in the aggregate. I, I do think that's what the, the 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 research literature is telling us, and I think it is because, in in essence, that um, so often they induce changes to the brain that um, do make you particularly vulnerable to relapse upon drug withdrawal, but at the same time can lead to some real functional problems long-term if you stay on the medications. It's almost like there's a trap there. Bob, you know, and we are out of time. We're going to have to stop. I feel like that's such an, you're raising such an important question. I'd like to invite people to read your book. It's called Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America by Robert Whitaker. To find out more, because you really lay that, this out there and raise a lot of provocative questions. Um, Bob, we are going to have to say goodbye. I want to thank you so much for well, being my guest. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a, you know, a delightful conversation. My thanks tonight, too, to Goob for mixing the sound and to Maurice Leonard for the music. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety, please go to the website at safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe to get a weekly um, notice about the show. You can also download it from iTunes or visit us on Facebook. Coming up next is Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.